welcome to our fifth session of uh, the Brain of the Firm reading group of General Intellect Unit. Uh, we've got a little bit of a smaller uh, group uh, today, um, and indeed a bit of a smaller chapter to discuss. Uh, so uh, we are on to chapter five, um, and Beer describes the chapter as follows. Uh, in Chapter 5, the simple algonode is used as a building block to construct a larger system, and the object of understanding that system is to discover the meaning of hierarchy in organizations. Hierarchies are needed for fundamental reasons given in logic when big systems are becoming organized. When they are translated into human terms, they seem to be all about power and prestige, with the result that people lose sight of the real nature and meaning in the system. So this uh, description of the chapter, honestly, uh, is more interesting than anything I read in the chapter itself. Uh, because what Beer is saying uh, is that the... Um, necessity of hierarchy uh, is just inherent in logic and inherent in the logic of complex systems. Uh, so, and he, he distinguishes that from the sort of negative aspects of hierarchy that we commonly hear about. So, uh, uh, Jeremy, you had something to say about this. Yeah, there's something in evolutionary biology called hierarchy theory, which is where um, beers operating out of. Uh, I don't know a lot about hierarchy theory. Uh, John Lee, when I was at Metaforum this year, he had a book on hierarchy theory that he insisted I get a copy of. And I have it, but I haven't read it yet. So supposedly a lot of what beer is talking about with hierarchy is a biological concept, certainly not the authoritarian concept of it. Uh, yeah, Shane, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. It's um, th th this this stuff is quite subtle, and it can take a while to get one accustomed to thinking in this kind of slightly different way. Um, it, it, he's 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 kind of shifting attention off of like hierarchy as like a pyramid with things stacked on top of each other. With a, and this, this thing we associate with like the, the hierarchies we're familiar with in in these uh, degenerated social systems of just authoritarian command from above. Beer's notion of systemic hierarchy is more like. Um, systems being nested within each other or like being like recursively encapsulated. So it's, it's more of the kind of hierarchy of the cell being inside of an organ and the organ being inside of a body and the body being inside of a larger body and so on, rather than a vertical stacking of, uh, of you know, like uh, of, of elements that weigh down on each other. Um, right. It's a very different way of thinking, but there's, there's, still, there's still hierarchies in the abstract, right? It's kind of a matter, it's a matter of murology uh, of, you know, parts and holes, uh, and certainly, uh, gets back to the, uh, discussions that we had on the show about, you know, um, autopoiesis and Aristotle and all that kind of stuff. Cause, you know, as soon as you say it's like, oh, this hierarchy is biological, it makes me, makes me think about Aristotle right away. <laughs> uh, uh, cool. Uh, so, yeah, I, I mean, I think we're all somewhat familiar with this concept that Beer is uh, uh, describing here, but I don't think he's, I've ever read him putting uh, quite so fine a point on it um, as he says in that introduction there. So I just thought that was 
that was very interesting. Um, okay, uh, so let's actually get into chapter five. Uh, I, I think a chapter that uh, I would say is weaker than uh, the previous four we've read uh, in terms of communication. Um, maybe has some interesting points, uh, but certainly many of the readers, uh, including myself, struggled with uh, Beer's example, which is really the centerpiece of the whole chapter. Um, so are there any general comments aside from that on uh, chapter five? Uh, Jeremy, go ahead. Yeah, the execution is poor, but what he's trying to do is really important, which is how do you go from one algodonic circuit to a multi-node of algodonic circuits? And that's going to come up a lot when he talks about the multi-node in a further chapter, and then he's going to talk about it a lot in how it was contextualized in Chile with the algodonic meters installed in people's houses. So... I'm disappointed in this chapter because I think it's unclear and confusing, but what he is trying to do is what happen is describe what happens when you have an assemblage of algodonodes all thrown together and how to navigate what output that spits out. And Steve? Yeah, I mean, you know, I I, I as well, you know, struggled a little with the details of of the example. Well, you know, I think generally you know, broadly speaking, it's clear that what he's, how he's connecting these things together. But I think, you know, it was just kind of missing the why, you know, and like, even in the narrow confines of this example, like, you know, it took me a little bit to realize, okay, the first part was kind of, in a sense, like kind of compressing the 10,000 input uh, state space down into the, uh, you know, the binary light, um, 16 bit light space or whatever, eight bit light space. Um, like that was sort of lost in the first in the first part, and then once he adds in the, the feedback, you know, like to what ends or to what ends would feedback in this in this example really make any sense at all, even as like an illustrative purpose? You know, do you and like I did struggle on like when would you reward or punish um, a particular configuration of lights? Um, is that based on what the input is? Is that just preference like is there are you trying to capture patterns in that like all of that seemed to be completely missing and i think really uh prevents the, the communication of like what this is really trying to do um, that, that was yeah my from it. uh i i definitely also uh got that impression like it seemed as though he was carrying forward assumptions from the previous chapter but not uh, highlighting that those assumptions were carried forward and or like how uh, the assumptions that were used in the simple algodonode uh, map onto this multi-node system uh, in, in any real depth. Uh, I do think another point that stood out to me was um, that beer here is showing how you get from a kind of like, you know, uh, circuit diagram uh kind of ashby-esque uh algata node to an anastomotic reticulum um because he says like this is kind of the limit case where it's not exactly an anastomotic reticulum because you can puzzle out the relationships but it's on the verge of getting there um uh, Shane, uh, go ahead. And then uh, after that, we will go to uh, uh, Rudy. Yes, Rudy. 
Indeed. Um, yeah, so okay, I agree that this this is a pretty weak chapter, and I think he, he does kind of wander a bit about the place and sort of doesn't get his point across especially well. Um, but as to the why of all this, I think, uh, like, the structure of the first part of the chapter before he gets to the example is that he, you know, sets up this whole thing of, like, general hierarchies of control, and then is like, oh, it's interesting to begin this analysis in the context of like the basic decision element, which is like a manager, which is analogous to a nerve cell, right, to a neuron. Um, and the trick with a neuron is that it, it spits out a kind of yes-no signal, uh, but based on various kinds of inputs um, that can be kind of all over the place. And this this is analogous to our, it's it's the, I'll, I'll get a node, right, like that. You have a, a set of inputs, uh, some bullshit in the middle, and then a, a, an output. Um, and he's going on about like the, reaching the threshold of decision and all this kind of thing, and that like oh when the, the decision network inside the neuron is um, is like this this transfer function. What if the transfer function is wrong? It needs some input to to guide it in tuning itself to 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 behave better. So we've gone from just considering like input network output to input plus some kind of higher level adjustment into the network and then that produces the output so that it's it's getting into the realm of training and, and learning right that like the the neuron will be taught how to respond correctly rather than being hard coded to do so and that's that's what the feedback is about um, so the feedback is coming from a, a higher level of the hierarchy or of the the meta system and like I think previously he was going on about like meta languages, right? That like if you have a given language, you can express certain ideas, but there's there's always ideas that you can't really express in the language. So you need a meta language higher up than that to talk about the the language. And if this is the analogy there that like the meta language is kind of injecting variety from above into into the process. Um, uh, what does he have then? It's yeah, it's, it's a lot of that kind of stuff, which is it's decision elements uh, and so on. Um, there was something else that I'd seen there. Um, I think it gets it kind of gets to its interesting parts then on page sixty six and sixty seven, where it's just before the example really comes out. Right, that. Um, uh, let me leave you this out. Before looking at any actual hierarchies, a note of recapitulation is in order. All our training teaches us to think about command networks as being specially designed as having nodal points, which are in effect switches, and depending on feedbacks in the engineering sense defined in chapter two. But viable systems reveal in actual fact an anastomotic reticulum rather than a properly designed network in which the elements form and reform themselves into appropriate structures. These elements, which are the nodal points, are governed by transfer functions which change. They are best described as continuously modified conditional probabilities rather than the immutable operators, which standard control theory depicts as differential equations. Thirdly, the feedbacks are not simply error-correcting devices which adjust outputs to correct values. They are algodonic loops arriving from a higher-order system which affect the first two kinds of change. Even so, these systems remain dominated by their feedback functions as they do in standard control, control theory. Right, so it's not the case that this is simple error-correcting feedback in, this, in the sense of like the, the thermostat, right? Like that there is, there is a known good value and you're just bumping the, the, the actual reading back down to whatever the value is supposed to be. What we have is this kind of um, blob-like structured weirdness where all the, all the various levels of the um, control system are all mutually influencing each other and mostly influencing down downwards, right? To kind of fit to a, to an open space. It's not, it's not fitting to a known 
um, good outcome. It's fitting to these kinds of like uh, exploratory outcomes, right? It's, it's, a it's a continual process that's being carried out in, in many dimensions. Um, and I think that's the kind of, that's why this stuff is important. Now, the, the example that follows it is pretty poor, <laughs> but that's what he's trying to get to there. Um, he's trying to get you to think of layers of decision elements that are trying to um, learn their way towards better performance. Right, right. Um, absolutely. Uh, okay, Rudy, and then Steve. Uh, Rudy, you're muted. Oh, sorry. I've been talking for a bit. Uh, so, yeah, I feel like Shane said quite a few things I wanted to touch on. But then I just something I wanted to bring up is that this example is really, he. I feel like he tries to make it too simple. And by making it too simple, you lose some of the context. And this idea of meta languages, which he doesn't address in Chapter 5, but he addressed in the, pre in the previous chapter is very important, that in the sense that as you go up, the hierarchies, you need to have a different way of tying things together. Otherwise, this just seems like a binary search algorithm in some ways, like you split half and half, and you don't really get the idea of why you're doing this. Yeah, uh, you definitely uh, get in the weeds uh, with this to some degree. Um, and that, that is very much like how I understood uh, the example by itself is like, oh, yeah, this is like a binary search. Okay. Um, even though I'm lost on the particulars, I can see the pattern. Um, Matt, or sorry, uh, Steve, did you have something you wanted to say? For, yeah, Steve, go ahead, and then we'll go to Matt. Yeah, um, <clears throat> actually, also just to add, you know, on that, the, the binary search thing. I mean, once I got that, you know, it kind of started broadly snapping into place, but, um, I mean, I think even that part of it, right, sort of suffered from, and I think I've read something to this effect in the, in the channel, like that is how we designed this network, at least at the beginning. And the fact that that particular design decision was a design decision and not like an, a function of the network itself or, you know, in a broader sense, glossing over sort of the distinction there and like, you know, the larger point of how these networks are supposed to operate versus the particulars of this very binary search um, uh, organization and how that plays out once you start, you know, pushing things through it. It's still, as far as <laughs> I'm concerned. But anyway, um, the, the original point, uh, the other point I wanted to make, um, getting back to the reading that um, Shane read a paragraph, you know, I, I do like the framing of looking at or the, the specific um, juxtaposition of saying it's better to look at this as conditional probabilities rather than you know, differential equations like control theorists. Uh, that resonated a little bit with me, too, because like in, in particular in my thesis work, like I struggled a lot on, um, you know, a lot of the robotics field and machine learning is so focused on, you know, learning, obviously. Um, and there has been a move away from sort of traditional feedback control and those principles, like at least once you get to like the behavioral level, right? Obviously you need that just to move robot limbs and such. But like what I tried to do was like bring that feedback control up that up the hierarchy so that it really guides the uh, the actual behavior of the system. And like that was seen kind of weirdly because everybody else was like, let's just throw some neural net or something at every block at every node in the hierarchy and let it do its thing, which is very in line with this, 
um, you know, the advantage I was always, or the, the thing I was always struggling with is like, well, if we could actually do it via differential equations, then we could like provably have the, the behavior be safe and things like that. And, you know, from an engineering perspective, that's good, right? Um, the robot won't put its arm through a wall or a table or something like that. Um, but, you know, it is limiting. And so like balancing that and you do want the systems to adapt and learn. And certainly there was learning and how I did this, but like, you know, how far down you want to go and make it like analytically provable and how you want to find areas where you do want to let the system adapt, um, even at like a fairly granular level is, is a constant tension. And, uh, um, yeah, I don't know. It just resonated a lot with like stuff I've been working on. And, um, it is sort of, it is a back and forth and it is, is a tension that, uh, it's interesting. You know, it is good to be able to explain the stuff sometimes, but, um, you know, sometimes that's just impossible. Yeah. Um, you know, it does seem to be a common uh, response to this sort of approach that comes up, which has to do with uh, safety or uh, risk minimization. Um, and sort of the the that that kind of analytical proven approach, you know, like the way NASA designs the software for a spacecraft or something, um, uh, has certain advantages that this kind of more organic approach doesn't have. Um, that, that's interesting that it's just like, it's such a, it's such a pattern that I see like, you know, popping up from multiple different people talking about, uh, this kind of, uh, ontological or design approach. Um, okay, uh, let's go to Matt. Yeah, um, uh, it, it, yeah. Uh, just echoing what what, what I've, I've said is uh, uh, that you know the, the example like you know if we didn't already like have a have like a background in like machine learning, I just wouldn't have been able to follow it. Like, uh, but okay, yeah, like, I got it. You know, the, there's things that are optimizing of you know, that that um, uh, um that all have a bunch of little levers, and you know, like uh, uh, the best lever position is decided by another system, but you know, each of those systems has its own levers, and then you know it's it's all in a great chain of being. But uh, uh, yeah, let, let, yeah, and uh, also also agree that yeah, like uh, the fact that he dropped um, uh, the thing the thing uh, fr from the last example, where like each layer is like taking different things into account. Um, uh, uh, yeah, that, that also made it like harder to follow. Though I guess like this um, was the takeaway from this. I guess that that it can just um, handle more variety if it's like in serial like this. I think that was it, or I don't know. Um, I think that's certainly one takeaway, uh, is, is that like, yeah, you, you, you do get to handle more variety, uh, by structuring things this way rather than having like one algorithm node with like whatever it was, uh, however many inputs it was, it was a lot, <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, just directly connected in, um, I, I think that was part of it, uh, but let's go to Shane. Uh, yeah, so it's um, it's it, it, the, the the thing that Stafford will try to get to over the course of the book is that um, structure. Th there are kind of hard limits on the um, the amount of variety that a given system can a given node can handle, and there's really limits to how big you can grow a thing before it kind of falls apart. So it it pays to have this kind of layered approach, right? Um, 
And I guess as we kind of move into the example, there's one uh, in the middle of page 67, it's worth pointing out again, this thing about conditioning, right? That um, he's kind of going over the same thing here. It's like, oh, this is an anisotropic reticulum and has input and output. And, but that the, this, this node, the decision element is conditioned by a meta system. So conditioned, and on the previous page, it's conditional probability, right? That like, these are probabilistic machines whose probabilities are conditioned by meta systems. Um, so that you know, you're, the, if a given layer of the the the, the structure um, needs assistance with with uh, with adapting to its situation, it, it asks the level above, or the level above injects uh, a kind of higher level view into it to condition the the way that it will develop, and that means that the the higher level doesn't need to be concerned with the precise details of what the lower level is doing. It just issues general guidance. And also the lower level doesn't need to be too concerned with what the higher level is, is really cares about. It can just do its own thing. Um, so it's highly organic, right? It's allowing each layer of the system to do its own thing, but in, in collaboration with the others. And looking at the diagram of the example, one of the things you'll, you'll notice straight away is that the top layers are extremely coarse. They're very coarse grained. Like they, they, they make a simple binary distinction of, do I like left or do I like right? And then the, the layer down can kind of take that guidance and run with it and go, well, do I like middle left or do I like, do I like middle right or whatever, that kind of thing. And then by the time you get to the bottom, you get to the actual like fine-grained tactile real stuff, right? Like the actual result is down there. But the actual result is the, is the result of, of many, many little decisions that are made along the way, such that the, that top row, row one, doesn't really mind one way or the other. It just kind of says, "Yeah, I, I like I like this side. I like that side." You know? This is this is basically an eye test, right? Like when you go to the optometrist to get your vision checked, <laughs> and they, they they basically go through this search yeah. algorithm, right? They do. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Because that would be more effective. Like that that is more effective than having a big blob of letters on a huge chart and asking. Imagine asking the person sitting in the chair, find the smallest letter on this chart that you can still see. Like it would be very, it would be hard and it would take a bit of time. Whereas stepping down through these layers is a pretty quick way of arriving at the correct result and it, like, pretty consistently. Um, so that's, that's your contrast of a pretty well-structured system of arriving at a decision, which is still still fairly unstructured. I mean, there's all sorts of bullshit on that chart, right? But it's it's fairly structured versus the alternative, which would be this just completely unstructured thing of like, hey, look, here's a, here's a huge blob of like Picasso letters or whatever. You you find the one you like. Um, wouldn't wouldn't go very well, right? And you know, presumably, if you had like eagle eyes, you could pick out the right letter from a large chart. Mm -hmm. uh, for if your you vision, because you would have enough variety to do that. But given mm -hmm. what human vision is and the, the variations in human vision uh, between individuals, mm -hmm. using this kind of binary search is a much more effective way of uh, zeroing mm -hmm. on, on the right prescription. Um, and what's okay. probably remarkable is that whoever designed that kind of system probably didn't realize they're doing a classic cybernetic curve fitting thing, right? Like this, this is a pattern that crops up again and again, and it crops up unconsciously. But once we become conscious of this pattern, we can actually deploy it um, consciously and, you know, design our efforts that way. Right. Okay. Um, cool. So, uh, Let's uh, maybe go back uh, to the start of the chapter 
and just see if there's any things we sort of passed over that might be important. Um, um, so there's one thing he says here that's quite interesting. Um, in the first paragraph, uh, so we, we see how the basic control device works. It is an algodonic loop consisting of an algorithm stipulating a heuristic. But as we have also seen, the required algorithm is itself specifiable only in a meta-language. This means that a second-order system is required, linked to the first, and connected by its own algodonic loop. The process goes on forming a command hierarchy and could go on indefinitely. In logical theory, we could show that the, logic, the total system strictly requires an infinite number of meta-languages. We should never finish building it. Sooner or later, then, we have to adopt illogically an ultimate meta-system as paramount. Now, the fact that the adaptation of the ultimate meta-system is illogical uh, is, 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 it is logical to accept an illogical outcome for heuristic reasons, right? Um, so this is, this, is, uh, this is quite an interesting fact when we uh, think about, you know, just the applications of this theory, right? Like the, like the governance implications, uh, or what have you, um, kind of reminds me in a way of like Hegel's argument for monarchy. Um, but, <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, what do we think about this idea of like, you know, well, this, is, this, the buck stops here this far and no further. Um, uh, Shane, go ahead. Um, I've, I've just been leafing through my copy of Platform for Change here because I, I could have sworn I saw something in here uh, that kind of touched on this. But I think it, it, it's either in here or it's somewhere else in, in Beer's writing that he kind of says that um, at some level, the kind of the ultimate uh, level of the decision hierarchy is just survival. Like that's that's the the sort of um, the, the ultimate conditioning, right? That like the, the real gets its revenge eventually. Um, and that's... Uh, uh, the, the, the world itself is the kind of ultimate meta system that kind of um, shapes the environment that you have to operate in. I, I, I think that's kind of what it gets to somewhere along here, right? That like we can build yeah. up layers of um, of layers of decision, layers of of policy, right? Like, but the ultimate policy is is just survival, um, right? Which which came out in the uh, came up in the previous chapter uh, in the discussion of meta languages. Uh, that's probably what I'm thinking of then. Um, but yeah, that that's interesting. Then it's again this kind of idea that you can you can have that infinite regress in terms of strict abstract logic, but the logic of life demands a termination to the infinity. Um, so there's there's a there's a distinction between what is kind of like mathematically demanded and what is uh demanded by real life uh or as you said the real um mm -hmm. it reminds me of like i was i was watching um the man in the high castle that the other night and it was it was it's one of the final episodes of the, the last season but um one of the guys says something like oh these these two these two empires we defend they're they're but sand castles only the tides are, are are forever like that like there is there is something uh kind of kind of like what we saw in blade runner 2049 right that the the, the threat of just the the eternal sort of vortex of the ocean as, as the, the, the thing that will have the last word, right? Like the, the, the world will have the last word at some, at some level, regardless of what kind of structures we put in place. Ocean scene is so good. 
Um, All right. Uh, Get away from uh, cinematography here. But uh, Jeremy, please go ahead. Yeah, I'm ultimately in the book, there's two different hierarchies going on. So I'm not sure what he's pointing to. I mean, there's the hierarchy of system one, two, three, four, five. And then in the description of five saying that five is the final arbiter because we could go on indefinitely, but we're not. But there's also the hierarchy of recursion where he does say that's explicitly infinite. So, yeah, this is like literally Hegel. Uh, (laughs) Like this is this is exactly what Hegel says about infinity. Um, The bad infinity. Yeah, the infinite the infinite regress is bad infinity, and then the good infinity is the infinity of recursion. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Uh, interesting. Wow. Um, okay. Well, that's pretty cool. Uh, go ahead, Jeremy. I just wanted to unraise my hand, so I'm sorry. Uh, all right. Cool. All right. Well, uh, let's move on then. Um, so, uh, so he gets down to the 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 sort of elemental uh, nature of decision of yes and no. Uh, the the bi- like that 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 binary is somehow fundamental, and the fuzzy uh, uh, might I suggest and perhaps you woulds are really socially intricate ways of saying yes or no, um, which uh, I think yeah I mean I think I I agree with that uh, taking into account the sort of um, organic structure of the hierarchies that he's describing, right? Because, you know, uh, in our sort of decision-making processes as individuals, we might not really be reasoning in terms of yes or no, but uh, once it's filtered through the whole process, you do get an outcome. Uh, Shane, go ahead. Yeah, that's that's a really interesting thing to raise there, because, I mean... Uh, I feel like kind of you're, or I, I get this impression with a lot of the cyberneticians. They're kind of dealing with two different, two sort of related modes of thought, right? There's the the kind of um, statistical kind of virtual mode of thought of like overlapping pressures and and various like interconnected forces which push and pull in all sorts of different ways, on uncountably many ways. And then there's also the kind of more computational binary sort of sort of thinking. So it's like. Um, and he does mention it here with the like page sixty six, the like fuzzy algodonics, right? Like that the the algodonic signaling is never quite as precise as we'd like it to be, but um, I guess be, be, it, our our way of thinking about the world does often push us towards these kind of binary sort of things. So it's like um, there is definitely a truth to the statement that um, a lot of stuff does reduce to kind of like yes no sort of stuff but um it's also the case that those yes no decisions like in the case of the neuron are produced by uh kind of really unrepresentable overlapping tides and forces that uh, that that feed into the inputs so yeah it's 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 hard to it's hard to hold both of these models in your head without flipping into one or the other and and ignoring the other right yeah and I think it would also be the case that it would be difficult to isolate specifically where the binary outcome happened. 
because mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. flow of uh, the flow of happening, the flow of being, uh, mm-hmm. is kind of anastomotic. Uh, it is, and yeah, and, the, the becoming uh, matrix. Yeah, yeah, the is exactly the flow of becoming is 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 kind of like it might make it difficult to actually isolate out where the binary is happening, but nonetheless, mm-hmm. we can say that logically it is happening. Um, yeah, it might not be the so point we that, that we think it is, but it is there. Mm-hmm. So like on page 65 in the middle, we get that bit of like, in, in such a case, the connectivity between input and output would be in practice untraceable. Um, so he's, he's certainly gesturing in those directions, right? Um, but, um, hmm. Uh, Matt, go ahead. Yeah, like it, it feels a little inorganic, but I mean, you know, I don't know. Beer knows more you know, about management uh, uh, than I do, who have never ma- managed anyone. He commanded troops in battle and stuff. Uh, I'm just trying to get like the binary thing. I I guess like because I mean, I feel like a lot of what they wind up doing is you know, um, uh, uh, like aren't, aren't um, yeah, you know, like carrying down like uh, directives and uh, uh, priorities from like other levels. Though I guess maybe like the way that often manifests is all right. Start saying yes to this kind of thing and start saying no to this kind of thing so i don't know yeah uh yeah that's definitely what uh he says about it is that like it may just be uh as in the example in this chapter dividing between two categories one of which is more preferable and one of which is less um shane go ahead um i think also a way to um, help clarify this is again to focus on the neuron, right? Because when when the neuron uh, accepts many crazy inputs and various fluctuating signals and thresholds and all that kind of stuff, and it does that crazy interconnective stuff, and then emits a, a pulse signal as a kind of yes/no thing, it's doing variety engineering. It is taking in a highly various input scenario and condensing it into a decision output scenario. So decision in the kind of binary sense is it has utility in reducing variety. And when we think of those like command hierarchies, right? Like the, the boss just decides, you know, uh, yes to this initiative, no to that initiative and passes it down. Uh, part of the reason it's passed down in that format is because it's just easier to pass it down that way. Like it, it's easier to give instructions in a very simple format, like, you know, yes to this, no to that, and have intelligent agents act based on that decision lower down. Um, that's that's an essential element of variety engineering that you you can't possibly allow for the crazed rhizomatic input process to to flood all throughout the system because it would it would just melt into the kind of body without organs right like a, a kind of primordial soup of just like proteins sloshing against each other you you kind of need these filters that are able to aggregate and condense information and then just decide yes do that yeah and I think. It, you're you're exactly right that what we're dealing with here in in sort of this discussion is like the specter of Deleuze <laughs> that is haunting this text mm-hmm. uh, in the background. Kind of explicitly with the with the sliders, right? Like the the sliders which cut across in the example, right? The sliders which cut across the, all of the layers of of recursion is a very body without organs sort of thing, right? There's this cross-cutting concern that ignores all of the, the boundaries between the layers, right? Like the, the organization yeah. of the example is actually undermined by its own feedback loop. Um, right. So yeah, that, that's all there, right? You know, it's, it's, it's tricky stuff. And I guess what Beer is kind of, kind of in general, his project is kind of steering against that kind of like, he's, he's steering that middle path between like a monarchic authoritarian sort of like um, 
you know, gaining order through pure order or whatever. And mm -hmm. he's also steering against the kind of like Deleuzian meltdown of just like body without organs, protein sludge. Um, yeah. And he's kind of picking a middle path where you can be sufficiently organized to be functional, but you can also allow a little bit of the inside of the outside to creep in. Like even in the example, he explicitly allows for these like two, um, these two extra nodes on the roulette wheel, which will inject random variety into the process. Yes. So there's there's that kind of openness to the to the exterior that is uh, is kind of essential in biological processes, right? Like you you can be organized, but you also have to appropriate new energy and uh, appropriate entropy, really. Um, yeah. Which you know, if you do too much of it, it melts you down. But you got to do some of it, you know. Yeah, and I I find that quite interesting that these roulette wheels uh, have are 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 entropy generators because when you compare this diagram to the VSM. Those um, those entropy generators uh, would be uh, analogous to the external environment that the mm -hmm. organization is interacting with. Um, yeah. And so in a sense, like, you know, that point about the environment uh, preventing the ossification of the organization is carried mm -hmm. through in this example here. Um, yep. Yep. <clears throat> OK. Um, cool. Uh, so we, we have talked about the um, example itself at some length. Um, and I think I might want to pick it up on page 71. Uh, in paragraph four, uh, Beer says, it is not worth expounding a full theory for these probability shifts because we have already oversimplified this apparently simple device. If the algodonic feedback is not crude, and why should it be, the slides will be moved on an infinitely variable scale. This complicates the theory very much. Moreover, we do not really want to be stuck with eight contacts per row. We may have a random scatter of a huge number. The mathematics become more complicated again, but that need not daunt us. What is important is that the mathematics become quite arbitrary. In detail, the probability transfer functions for any state of this 32-element array are immensely complicated and not really worth knowing. Only a little more elaboration, only a little less precise design, and our machine genuinely is an anastomotic reticulum. The strange thing is that it does the job. It adapts 10,000 combinations of input states to 16 output states so that an observer speaking meta 1 judges the result to be profitable. The machine then learns to behave successfully. If the environment changes in terms of the meta system's criteria of success, the machine rapidly adapts to the change. That is what we want. Uh, so, again, uh, the mathematics and the uh, circuit diagrams that we have here uh, are sort of just there to provide a bridge from the elementary concepts of this chapter to uh, the broader uh, functioning of adaptation in hierarchy. Uh, any, any comments on, on this uh, section here? Um, it was interesting that this, this does this, he does actually say pretty much the thing we were just talking about, right? That like the structure of the machine, um, it, it devours randomness at its input and then spits out something that is structured and less various than the input was. So we go from 10,000 input states down to 16 output states. 
um, which is this, this is what structure is. It is variety engineering. Yeah. Uh, Steve, please go ahead. I mean, looking at it now, um, you know, it, it almost seems like, and maybe, maybe I was wrong about this initially, or maybe I'm off base, but like, it almost seems like that binary search initial structure of it isn't an accident or random. It's, it's a starting point. The way that it reconfigures itself over time um, lets it adapt. However, you know, Meta One wants it to to adapt. But like, this is a way of this is maybe a more general way of taking ten thousand inputs and mapping it over time through feedback to an appropriate sixteen uh, output state uh, system. It's not in the the binary structure of this wasn't you know, just a random example. It was a starting point. Um, right. Which is to say that, like, uh, given that beer sort of ontologically begins with the binary, um, it's a suitable example to demonstrate his point uh, that, like, you know, I, I the element of decision is crucial uh, it is it is it is final. Uh, so I'm going to make this example that does a binary search because I can show how that's effective and demonstrate the importance of decision. Can I just sorry jump back in? Yeah, go ahead. Um, yeah, so I mean, my understanding of this, and I guess we haven't really like explicitly mentioned it, um, is that you know based on the ten thousand inputs, it will essentially carve that up into a mapping onto, you know, one of the bulbs or one, you know, one green bulb on the 16 bit or 16 bulb output. And, you know, we'll do that just kind of evenly uh, in the sense of, you know, the binary distribution as you go down the, um, down the hierarchy. And that's, you know, that's one mapping. Sure. And maybe that's the one you want, but um, if your meta language one wants a different mapping, you know, over time we'll adapt to that such that it maps those 10,000 inputs to the, one single ball but output um in the way that you know you deem profitable as as he frames it so um in some ways like you could the binary way of structuring that seems general and that the connections are all there at the beginning to make sure that there's a you know potential full coverage or matrix between the input and output space and you're not precluding um any possibilities but uh it's kind of, but it, the binary structure of it is only useful insofar as that that it that it provides a, a means to make sure that all connections are ultimately possible as you as you push uh, feedback into the into the system. Is that is that is that like yeah, on base I, uh, interpretation? I, I, I think I I think I see what you're saying, uh, which is like maybe that the the binary uh, structure and then the feedback that goes through it. Uh, ensures that the system has enough uh, connectivity to actually be able to adapt to whatever the meta one user wants out of those that color possibility space. Okay, yeah. Uh, cool, cool, cool. Okay, uh, Shane, uh, you've been waiting. Please go ahead. Yeah, uh, no, that's that's all, that's all really great stuff from Steve. I'm glad you brought up the um, the observer speaking meta one, right? Because I think that's that's actually something that falls by the wayside in the example and is actually very important to it. That the machine begins in this uh, unadjusted state, like it, its possibility space is wide open. If we were to think of it in terms of landscape, you know, in in possibility terms, it's it's completely flat, it's featureless. Any of the lights could light up. 
And the observer then, as, as the machine moves around, the observer expresses a wish that, like, oh, I really, I really wish only the left hand side bulb would light up. And he starts, you know, messing with the, the strips and stuff. And so the the possibility space develops lumps and hills and such. And over time, it you know the feedback, this feedback circuit, which includes the meta observer, um, adjusts to 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 fit this thing. Now, crucially. The machine would not be capable of knowing that up front. Uh, it, the machine is, is a structure which is capable of absorbing this task, right? Like that it is, it is capable of being manipulated in this way to produce this kind of result. The machine itself, like the machine is composed of these meta layers. We can think of the, the rows as being meta controls or things, but the, the really interesting meta control is the observer, uh, who unfortunately isn't drawn on the page. I think maybe if you just drew the, the person with the hand, you know, touching the, the strips, that would, that would help it along. Um, the machine isn't capable of understanding what the, the meta one system really wants uh, or what the observer wants out of it. And we as readers don't know what they want either. We are not sure how this structure fits into an inevitable like meta two that slots above it. Um, so in some sense, the, the, the sort of lights and such, um, it, it, it's, it's unfortunate that they're elaborated in this very painstaking way because they're not actually all that interesting. What's really interesting is that you start with a flat possibility space and then develop lumps in it um, so that you, you, you adjust and learn to, uh, to what some, some control structure wants. And then, you know, inevitably there's, there's like a, I think it's probably an example that came up in the previous chapter of like the philosophers who instruct this meta one person that they, they yeah. want to prove that green is better than red or whatever. There's, there's all that kind of things. But this, this structure here isn't capable of deciding any of that, but it can decide how to light a bulb based on a roulette, roulette wheel. Yep. Uh, okay, Steve, uh, please go ahead. Sorry to keep jumping on the details here, but, um, but yeah, I mean, I think it's that chain, right? But the, the other missing piece here, which isn't fully consolidated in my head, is like, it's not just conditioned on what the, the observer with the button is, but it's also on the environment, right? And so what mm -hmm. I think it's trying to get to is that like, it's what that observer pushing the buttons wants to happen given any particular, you know, conditioned on any particular input state, which there's 10,000, so the mm -hmm. 10,000 different preferences of what they want, right? Um, and so it's mapping yeah. the, the observer wants to translate those 10,000 possible inputs into a particular mm -hmm. model. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of like the like SimCity map generator. <laughs> like you have that empty landscape and then it just generates, you know, entropy and gives you <laughs> possibilities. And then the user is yeah. like, oh, yeah, I kind of like that one. And then, you know, kind of yeah. towards that. Yeah, I guess that in itself is interesting, right? Because there's there's um, the, the it's seemingly the observer, the meta one observer is capable of distinguishing 16 different states, right? That it, it could possibly care about these things, right? Like, um, but it, it couldn't really grasp 10,000 states. Um, but there, because it's, it's this uh, reduced mapping, there's inevitably going to be many input states which map to the same output state. But those, they don't actually matter. What matters is the result that the, the observe that the control system cares about. And it's, it's really interesting that they're, they're just like kind of allowing various randomness to, to flow through the system, just so long as it generates whatever you want at the output, that's fine. Mm -hmm. it's, it's again, variety reduction. It's bringing, bringing it down into a space that you actually want to control for and want to care about. And the, this is kind of what, what breaks the brains of these reductionists, right? That like they would want to know precisely which input state generated the output. It's like, who gives a shit? It's the left-hand green bulb. I don't fucking care. You know, it's like, that's the, that's the result I wanted. I don't care how it got there, <laughs> you know? Right. 
as long as the the design can mediate between the entropic input and the desired output um yeah yeah that's what you want um okay cool uh so uh we then move on um he talks a little bit about how he struggled a great deal to produce a working uh demonstration piece of 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 this machine uh like you know it was difficult enough to grasp in writing here uh but you know doing all this analog engineering uh with like quite primitive parts um there is a huge number of mechanical and electrical traps. In particular, the electrical circuits in practice are full of cross connections so that the only practical version bristles with the diodes necessary to control the direction of the logic. Then the simple machine, which I still think is easy to understand conceptually, looks hideously complicated, which defeats the object of the illustrative ex- exercise, although it brings home the variety handling capacity of the nodes. A full-scale demonstration model, which looks very extremely handsome, was finally built by T.C. McNamara Limited and N.T. Griffin of Exeter University, whom I think. Uh, so I have not seen this this demonstration machine, um, but uh, you know it's interesting that like the applied mechanical model or electrical model uh, suffers from the same problems that the uh, written model has. Uh, so <laughs> uh, there's there's too much variety to, to realize uh, for the the, uh, the student, um, but uh, apparently we we finally did get some kind of uh, machine that was built by these folks. Um, would be interested in between sessions to see if we could pull up a picture of it or something. Um, okay, uh, the final paragraph. Uh, Thus it is that we have to think in terms of a far more sophisticated technology. There are two alternatives, and the choice between them is an important choice, as we shall see later. The first involves programming a general-purpose electronic computer to behave in this way. The second involves building special-purpose systems using solid-state physics. But much more important than anything technological at all is the recognition that that algodonodes exist, because just this sort of complex switching goes on inside management groups using people as the elements. So we kind of have like three different uh, 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 kinds of being here, right? There's the general purpose computer, uh, which I guess is like a Turing complete computer, uh, a, a special purpose built machine, uh, and then finally uh, human organizations. Um, and they're all working with these same principles. Uh, Jeremy, go ahead. So Beer's not going to tip his hand in this book, but by the time you get to Beyond Dispute, the invention of Teams Integrity, you find that one of the things that Beer is trying to explore are conscious beings that are composed out of human beings. So he believes that there are conscious entities that are made up of human beings. And in Teams Integrity, he's going to talk about a deliberate configuration of humans that produces a new kind of conscious entity that does different things than individual humans do. And so part of this idea in the final sentence 
is kind of hinting to you that the VSM, when it works, is going to be a new kind of entity, a new kind of um, autopoietic creature that's composed of human beings. And the nodes are going to be managers, where manager is defined as anything in the in the cluster of human beings that's capable of making decisions that affect the system. Right. Uh, this reminds me very much of uh, the chapter in Capital Volume 1 on cooperation, uh, the very strange ways that Marx describes cooperation between individuals uh, as, in the, as this kind of like, you know, the multi, multi-headed, multi-limbed beast uh, that can that can do all these strange things. Um, I, that was always a that was a chapter that always stood out to me in the book. And and when I remember when I did the the Capital Volume One reading group when I was in my master's program, we had someone from business school uh, who was in the reading group, uh, and he said, um, "Hey, like this is pretty amazing. Like you know, Marx was like." a century ahead of his time in terms of management theory <laughs> when he wrote this chapter. <laughs> uh, okay, uh, let's go to Matt and then Shane. Yeah, I mean, uh, um, uh, yeah, the the, 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 the reticulum stuff l- l- like does kind of give me a, a better appreciation of like bureaucracy. Um, uh, um, and yeah, l- l- like, uh, and yeah, which is something that, that, that maybe, um, uh, I th- think, you know, the, the left tradition may, may, and maybe revolutionary traditions in general ca- kind of underrate because I mean, like, yeah, it's, it's kind of really non-trivial to like have like a, um, like a, a system that the, you know, uh, that really does like work as a system and like, you know, uh, you know, uh, can actually can e- e- even to some degree, you know, like regulate what it's supposed to be regulating. You know, a lot of organizations just like sort of fail to thrive and just never, uh, you know, just never turn into anything. Like there is something kind of weird and organic about that process. You know, it's part of why, you know, like institutions like, uh, you know, like the post office or, you know, the military, like, you know, they, 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 they like, like there's something, or it's, it's like a sourdough starter, you know, like you can't just, yeah, you, you can't just build it. You know, like, 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 like it has to, yeah, it has to have a little foundation then, you know, and then it matures and like, you know, you, you, like, like you can't just like build it from scratch. Yeah. It has to, it, yeah, it, it has to be resilient enough to, um, to adapt. And then, you know, it has to have some time to adapt. Uh, yeah, having just made a sourdough starter over the course of two weeks, uh, I can appreciate the complexities of that process. <laughs> uh, Shade, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think this this this, re- this last bit really is fascinating, right? Um, uh, yeah, that like it, if if the cyberneticians are right and agency is a general feature of reality and generally tends to emerge and it, it, it emerges in these kind of layered systems, right? Like that you have um, this kind of agent behavior in the small scale that composes into, you know, large scale organisms and stuff. There's really no reason to believe that process would stop with human beings, right? Like it's, it's, there's, this is kind of um, like, I, I, I do take, pretty huge objection to kind of human exceptionalism in that sense, right? Of like, we, we're, we're the highest thing that's ever going to develop. And I find it's very funny on the left that um, I think a lot of people are very resistant to this idea of like social organism, even though like it's in Marx, right? And like, even though like, if you're positing like a historical development where the proletariat as a social agent starts to assert its agency, you kind of can't really think about that unless you have a 
like theory of agency that applies at that level. Um, so th this this is very very interesting and and very kind of troubling stuff for a lot of people, right? Like it's I think it is it is very important for us to grapple with this kind of like what what really is it to build social organism that is capable of uh, asserting itself, um, and you know, we really have to push back on kind of naive human reductionism as well of like, oh, well, all, all these things, they actually just reduce to individual human actors because, you know, pe people, I think, generally find this kind of concept kind of scary, right? that like there would be uh, meta organisms that are composed out of organisms, right? Or that, that, that like something would, it would develop agency of its own, which is, it, it's kind of evident to us, like it's um, empirically, it, it could not be more clear that social organism is a thing, but we, we don't, if we're not grappling with it, we're kind of lost, right? Yeah, well, and I think the, 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 the scary thing about it is that it immediately brings to mind Leviathan, um, right? Mm -hmm, like, certainly. literally, that is the image that Hobbes used, right? It's just a person <laughs> made of people. Uh, right, right. And, uh, you know, uh, the left uh, has obvious reasons to be cautious about Leviathan. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, everyone does, I guess, but... Uh, yeah. uh, uh, it's probably better to actually grapple with that problematic yes. than to just yes, say, definitely. you know, actually we can by fiat create a Rousseauian prelapsarian mm -hmm. paradise. Um, uh, mm -hmm. Okay, uh, let's uh, go to Jeremy. So um, behind the scenes, uh, there... The concept of autopoiesis comes from two biologists, uh, Umberto uh, Maturana and Francisco Varela. And uh, they coined the term autopoiesis. And one of the books in which they revealed this concept is this big book called Autopoiesis and Cognition. And they invited Stafford Beer to write the introduction and it turned out to be kind of confrontational because Beer immediately suggests that autopoiesis is a word that can be used to describe social structures. And Varela and Maturana completely objected and said, no, this is only a biological concept. It's not a social concept at all. And yet they let Beer keep the preface to the book in their book in which he does assert that this is a social phenomenon as well. And so that's really challenging and interesting that Beer radically turned Maturana and Varela on its head, where this was an incredibly radical idea in evolutionary biology that was very challenging to the evolutionary biology of the time. It basically throws Dawkins out a window, which is great, but it's kind of this idea that um, biological systems are creating themselves. It's not even they're reproducing themselves, because if it's reproduction, then it's going to create a different entity that's going to go off and go away and do other things. But that their definition, Maturana and Varela's definition of life itself was life is a system that is in the process of creating itself. Like a brick continues to be a brick. It goes through time and it's still a brick, but it's not engaged in the activity of bricking. 
whereas living things are engaged in the activity of sustaining and perpetuating their own existence. And Maturana and Varela use that as a definition of life. So for Beer to say, oh, yes, but social systems do that too, was completely confrontational because it's saying that groups of human beings working together form a living organism. And so it's an incredibly radical challenging, confronting idea. And I think we on the left are a little squeamish about this, because when we think about groups of human beings forming organisms, we think of like red guards in the Cultural Revolution or something, and we're horrified by that. But that's where beer is going. Beer's whole idea with the VSM, with Teams Integrity, with eudaimony as a social construct is all about creating living organisms that are comprised of human beings. And we're seeing the first inkling of that here. Right. Uh, for sure. Uh, it, it's, yeah, this very interesting that like he immediately made that leap uh, from the radical cutting edge of uh, biology uh, to something even more radical. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, it kind of reminds me of Spinoza a little bit. Like, <laughs> just like, I'm so <laughs> radical. Like, even the radicals find me a little bit off-putting. Um, it's also very funny that they got so spooked by it so quickly. That's the kind of stuff I'm on about. And I, I agree with Jeremy. Yeah, like, I think on the left, especially, we tend to be spooked by this. But um, I don't think there's another option aside from engage with us. Like, and especially if we want a revolution to endure. You know, because this this always comes up, right? Like, how do you make a revolution stick? Well, it needs to be autopoetic, you know, motherfuckers. Like, come on, it has, <laughs> it has to be. Like, because I think, but I think even the people doing that kind of thinking, on some level, either subconsciously or even in the way they express it, do know that whatever fucking weird um, voluntarist kind of uh, stuff that they're trying won't stick, and that's why they're concerned with why it won't stick. You know, there's there's an admission in there somewhere that like the the tactics and strategies that we know the canon, right, is probably a lot of it's fucking worthless, you know, because it doesn't have, a lot of it doesn't have this property of autopoiesis or, or of, of stickiness. Um, so what, what we would be trying to do is build a proletarian revolution, which has this autopoetic character and will endure after it actually does its thing. Like it will become a, a self-sustaining loop in the same way that capital seems to be a self-sustaining loop. Um, mm-hmm. You, you have to match capital with something equally or more powerful in that regard. It's uh, you can't you can't kind of wish your way into it. It's it's by fiat, right? Right. Um, Rudy, uh, you've had your hand up a few times there. I'd like to give you a chance to speak. Yeah, I wasn't sure I want to say something or not, so I put it up and put it down. But then uh, I'm just like one of the things I'm reminded now of all of after what Shane said is like the Maoist of Marxism Leninism in the sense that if you read like the smarter Maoists, they say like, well, this is a way of preventing rigidification of the party by going to the masses. And how Shane very well says, well, that just doesn't stick because whatever they did, then you eventually still have Deng coming along and they all like blame Dengism for betraying the revolution and they say Khrushchev then betray the other one. But it's because they're trying the solution that is not really addressing the root cause. It's just saying we put enough culture inside 
then it should work. But no, it's like both Jamie and Jeremy are saying that you have to somehow build a new resilient structure that actually sticks mm -hmm. around. And, and, and sticky systems have this, like, it, it's feedback that does it, basically, right? Like that um, kind of going to the people is maybe step one of a multi-step process of, of feedback kind of integration um, or whatever. Like, um, I think a lot of the revolutionary movements we see have this kind of unidirectional quality to them. They're like a spear thrust that goes in a direction but never never doubles back. There's there's no feedback. There's no kind of integration. And so they simply don't have that living character. Like, they're, they're, they're not autopoetic sort of systems. And so they inevitably fall apart. It's kind of... Once you kind of claw through the cybernetic stuff, it actually becomes kind of obvious why a lot of those those movements just go nowhere. Because uh, how could how could they do otherwise? They don't have the characteristic of being lively in that sense, and they don't have persistence. Like a thing can only persist if it has the mechanisms of persistence. And if shit doesn't have that mechanism, it ain't gonna fucking persist. You know? Right. Uh, Jeremy, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, you look at the efforts to establish Chairman Mao thought, and it's like. There are so many trappings in there that are taken from religion and from clubs and from different rituals that are really, really trying to bind the ideology to, uh, to everyday life, to every part of everyday life. But it's not. It doesn't quite work. And the more they try and bolt this onto everyday life, the more everyday life sort of wriggles out from under it. And it just is not organic enough to do – I mean, I hate to use the word totalitarian because it gets just used as a club and gets dissolved. But the idea of an all-encompassing ideological system that remains non-autopoietic except through force, you tend to rely on the force to sustain it. Right. Um, yeah, for sure. Uh, I mean, in a kind of like counterexample, I was thinking about like the period of the Cuban revolution before uh, they just implemented the Soviet model uh, when they were trying to experiment with um, kind of a, a Cuban socialism. Um, that sort of seemed like an attempt to uh, have that openness and adaptivity, but like just couldn't be sustained in the moment. Um, yeah. Uh, Shane, uh, go ahead. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I think Jeremy's point about the the kind of effort and force is kind of worth reinforcing, right? That like um, uh, trying to keep something going just by pure unidirectional force is kind of even like thermodynamically kind of impossible right like the the, the heat engine will run out of uh, ability to do the thing eventually right um it's also just like it's it's not a it's not a feasible model right like imagine imagine a kingdom in which you know everything has to be controlled from the throne by force like it's 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 absolutely infeasible right um you do need these kind of you kind you need structures and systems that are able to go along of their own accord even when nobody's looking and it's worth dwelling on Marx's ev uh, evaluation of capital, especially stuff like the law of value. It's like the value stuff is is extremely interesting because the law of value operates without any of the conscious effort of the agents. It's it's always there above and behind your head, even when you're asleep, or you know. So it doesn't require. I mean, obviously, the maintenance of of capitalism and bourgeois society does require some force, but it. It uses these like self self guiding kind of systems 
that are capable of keeping the thing on the rails even while the guards are asleep. That's really worth thinking about, right? Um, yeah. And I think we need to think about what, um, what, what elements of the kind of revolutionary movement and the elements of maybe the hypothetical future society would have that kind of character. Like, what, what is it that keeps, keeps things moving even when, even when the guards take a break or, or even when, when nobody's pushing at the wheel, it, the thing is still moving of its own accord? That's the kind of stuff you need to be thinking about rather than voluntaristic kind of stuff of like, oh, if we, if we just have the strong enough will, comrades, we will, we will surely prevail. You know, that, that doesn't do it, you know, because like you eventually have to, have, to, have to sleep, right? Like you have to take your hand off the wheel. And as soon, if, if when you take your hand off the wheel, the thing just careens off a fucking cliff immediately, maybe, you know, maybe there's something wrong with the machine, <laughs> you know, maybe you need some sort of autopilot <laughs> elements to it. Yeah, uh, you know, talking about the um, the society that's just, like, managed from the top completely uh, and how uh, unviable that is. Like, it, you know, on, like, Mike Duncan's sort of constant criticism of Nicholas II in the recent episodes of Revolutions has been exactly that that was his ideal of management. God put me here... So I have to be micromanaging everything. Uh, mm -hmm. And if you don't like it, then you get shot. Uh, you know. Well, it's, it's shoot the cat, right? Like, it's, it's yeah. these, the, the, the authority is destined to fail in that kind of way, right? That, like, it is, it, it is a, you know, it, it's, it's, a, it's a theme that recurs again and again. That, like, that, that, as you said, that, that thing is just not possible. But in the attempt to make it possible the system resorts to ever more desperate and violent kind of variety culling uh, to, to shrink the problem to a, to a degree that it might be able to get a grip on it. And of course, yeah. it never actually succeeds, but it costs a lot of life on the way. Um, yeah. Um, and, you know, especially in that case where there's a lot of social change happening at the same time that you're trying to assert uh, like just variety reduction by force uh, it's, it's not going to work out um, alright uh, well I think we will uh, wrap up the discussion uh, there uh, unless there's, there's no, I don't think there's anything super important I'm missing in the chat so uh, uh, thank you everyone um and uh, next week, we are going to move into section two of the book. Uh, so the, the, the second subsystem of this book, uh, which, again, is starting a second time. Um, and uh, yeah, we'll we'll see how that goes. Uh, so chapter uh, six is next week. I'll see Fabulous. you then. Thanks, everyone. Thanks.